I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I hunt out some of the best audio storytelling from around the world and share it with you. Today, the self-help goddess straight from the 60s. Maribel May's Complete Woman course is scientifically proven to improve your marriage or your husband's money back. Then imaginary advice blends fiction and documentary and sometimes surreal stories about the strange world we live in. I'm having a tricky time. Thanks. I heard arms dealer and farm sex criminal. Please hold as we connect you. The big one pictures how ready Los Angeles is to face a major earthquake. We're better prepared for the big one than any big city in America, which is to say we're woefully unprepared. This is a special safety message from the California Emergency Management Agency. No listener is 100% prepared. And She Done It delves into some of the real-life mysteries behind classic detective fiction, like why Agatha Christie disappeared for 10 days back in 1926. And do share any good podcast you found recently. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Here's a little gem from a couple of years ago that I somehow managed to miss first time around. It's a six-part series called The Complete Woman that sends up domestic life in 1960s America. Drawing her inspiration from old self-help guides, Amanda Lund creates the domestic guru Maribel May. And you don't have to listen too hard to see through her bright and breezy veneer. Welcome to The Complete Woman, the audio companion to the number one best-selling book of the same name, written by Maribel May. It's 1963. Divorce is on the rise. The tides are changing and marriages are drowning. Hi, I'm Maribel May, best-selling author, unaccredited marriage expert, and stay-at-home wife. Are you stuck in an unhappy marriage? Feel like there's no hope in sight? You're not alone. I receive millions of letters in the mail every day from sad people just like you. Here's what they have to say. 
A bad marriage is hardest around the holidays. If he wants to be king of the castle, maybe he should stop acting like the jester. I never even knew women were supposed to orgasm. Well, I'll do what he says, but inside I'm mad. I mean, how many nighttime headaches can one woman get? Is it so wrong to just want to be held? My husband thinks I'm fat. But I was almost in the Olympics. Somebody call a lifeguard. My marriage is drowning. drowning. But wait, there's hope. Maribel May's complete woman course is scientifically proven to improve your marriage or your husband's money back. But don't take it from the faceless announcer guy. Take it from the countless faceless voices I've helped. Thanks to Maribel, my husband doubled my allowance. I'm using it to buy him a boat. Thanks to Maribel's bedroom tips, my frumpy dumpy wife is a real sex kitten. Ah, ooga. Oh. Gracias a Maribel, yo soy la mujer completa. I used to get upset when dinner wasn't on the table when I got home from work. Now, I know I'm right. Thanks to Maribel's organizational tips, I no longer think of running away and joining a big band. Thanks to Maribel's program book, my parents are making lots of nighttime noise. Thanks, Maribel. Thank you, Maribel. Gracias, Maribel. Thank you. Are you ready to take the next step toward marital bliss? You've read my best-selling book. Now it's time to jump into the audio companion. I suggest you listen to this record in a calm, quiet setting. Lock your children in their rooms and put your pets in a basket. Pour yourself an afternoon swizzle and settle in. You're about to impart on a life-changing journey. Your husbands will thank you. Introduction. Hump hammocks and tuna casserole. How my marriage got away from me. As a young woman, I believed in the all-American Cinderella story. Like Cinderella, I was extremely tidy. And like her, it led me to meet my prince, Breck Morgan III. Breck and I had an instant connection. We were both white. During the months leading up to our engagement, Breck and I couldn't get enough of each other. I would just sit at his apartment while he studied his law books. He would talk about contracts and litigation, jurisdiction and justice. Of course, I didn't understand a word of it. Now, I may not know the Constitution from a pile of coats, but I make a mean ham and Swiss. As it turns out, that's all it takes. Or so I thought. We were married in the spring of 54 at the boat club, then off to Florida for the honeymoon. We spent most of our days lounging in our beachside hammock, which we lovingly nicknamed the Hump Hammock. As I rubbed banana boat oil onto Freck's lobster-red, mole-riddled back, I thought, well, this is it. Marriage is eating mangoes for breakfast and loving all the time. But it turns out a honeymoon does not the marriage make, or whatever that saying is. Over the next few years, our lives became more complicated. Breck was promoted at work and spent all his time on the phone with his stockbroker, Tad, not to mention their weekend camping trips. What did Tad have that I didn't? When Freck arrived home from work, I'd ask him how his day was, and in return I'd be offered an indecipherable grunt. We just about stopped talking altogether, aside from polite conversation. Pass the salt, please, or... The toilet is overflowing again. Your tuna casserole didn't agree with me. Good night. As the years wore on, things got worse. The barriers between us became insurmountable, and I hadn't a clue how to reconnect with my husband. This can't be the same sun-kissed freck from the hump hammock so long ago. Our little girl Judy arrived in the mail. I'm infertile, so I adopted a white black market child from Winnipeg behind Freck's back. Needless to say, he wasn't pleased. I poured all my attention into Judy. Rushing the knots out of her floor-length hair felt like a full-time job. It seemed the only way I could interact with Freck was to nag him. 
Shipwreck, you clogged the toilet again. Even though he had begged me to stop making my tuna casserole, I continued out of spite. And thus Freck continued to clog the toilet, and I continued to nag him. Was this my life? It was. Or was it? It was, but not for long. I've never been a quitter. Even when I'm fired, I don't quit. My marriage was a disaster, and I had to save it. What was the alternative? Divorce? Like Paula and Bob Jackal, who lived down the street? They divorced, and Paula was forced to attain higher education. Not for me, no thank you. My journey to save my marriage began with the pursuit of knowledge. I didn't own any books of my own aside from the Bible and a few wig catalogs, so I swallowed my pride and went to the library. I read until I was limp dick. Everything from books, to books on psychology, to pornographic novels. I began to apply certain persisting principles to my marriage with spectacular results. Almost overnight, my attitude changed. I was no longer that nagging shrew, but the fun, supportive cheerleader my husband Freck so desperately deserved. Not long after my attitude shifted, did Freck start opening up again? I remember the moment when Freck reached over and patted me on the rump, a tenderness he normally reserved for our basset hound, Chuck. That's when I knew. Our marriage was saved. I developed the complete woman course using the same techniques I applied to my own marriage. I believe it's possible for any woman to manipulate her husband into adoring her in a matter of weeks. You've read my best-selling book, and now it's time to dive into the audio companion. The complete woman technique has saved over 100 marriages in the continental United States and one and a half in American Samoa. I want to empower women to make their husbands happy. Part one, home is where the wife is. Self-exploration through household tasks. Chapter one, to-do lists or not to-do lists. That is the question. Now I know many a housewife who starts off the day with the best of intentions. I know I do. But between the dishes, the errands, staring at my reflection in the space-age convection oven, I barely have time to spank my kids, let alone Epsom salt my pets. How many of us dilly-dally around the house? Before you know it, it's 2.30 and you haven't even started dinner. And that five-hour nap you're dreaming of? <laughs> Forget it. There's no such thing as me time until all your he time is complete. If your husband came home right now, what would he see? A sink full of dirty dishes and an unbathed wife in culottes and sneakers eating fried shrimp in front of the television? Or worse, a brunette? If that's what Freck saw when he walked in the door, the only thing I'd be seeing is the carpet lining of his Jag's trunk. I'm inferring that he'd murder me. Take my friend Jackie, an accountant's wife. Her lack of organization got her in some hot water. I was just about to look at my privates in a hand mirror for the first time when, thankfully, the phone rang. It was my husband. He wanted to let me know that his boss, Mr. Sterling, would be joining us for dinner and would I please make a Salisbury steak and no jello. Mr. Sterling despised jello. Meanwhile, I got some harrowing news. You see, I was very sick and only had two months to live. Well, I was so frazzled by this that I selfishly forgot about Mr. Sterling's dislike for jello. And what did I make for dinner? Jello. Just one huge big bowl of jello. Needless to say, my husband did not get the promotion. Now, all of this could have been prevented if Jackie had kept a to-do list. Here's my to-do list. Wake up. Make the bed. 
sit in the kitchen, talk to my appliances, close my eyes for 15 minutes, wiggle my feet and wiggle my hands, sit in the passenger side of my vehicle, shave my head, buy a new wig, start dinner, take a bath, go to sleep, wake up. Take a minute now and write down everything you have to do today. Trust me, you'll feel a whole lot better. Did you get it all written down? Maybe you couldn't find a pencil. I'll give you one more minute. There, that's a minute. A female minute. Not enough time in the day, right, gals? Chapter 2. Testicle Bonnets and Brain Meringues. How to Never Be Alone, Even When You're Alone. Some of the Complete Woman, written and performed by Amanda Lund, and Carrie Lloyd, who makes Grief Cast, and who we spoke to last year on the show, put me onto that. Those six episodes uh, in The Complete Woman are all free, but there are two more series in a similar vein called Complete Joy and The Complete Wedding. Uh, You'll have to pay for those on Stitcher Premium, though. Ross Sutherland is a writer, poet and actor from Edinburgh who also makes a podcast called Imaginary Advice. He does it all himself. It looks like he records his voice links sitting in a cupboard. And he calls the podcast the most important thing he makes, a sketch pad, a place to try out new ideas. And it does have quite an experimental, even surreal feel to it at times, blending fiction and documentary to tell audio stories about the sometimes strange worlds we humans inhabit. You've reached the other side. Welcome to eternity. Forever is more than just a feeling. Please stay on the line. We just need a couple more bits of information and then we can send you on your way. If you get stuck or would like to talk to an operator, just say the phrase, I'm having a tricky time and we'll connect you with someone right away. This is Main Menu. If you would like to order your complimentary limited edition baseball cap, press 1 now. Otherwise, press 2. Um. Thanks. Next question. Would you be happy to answer an automated survey on your experience? If you'd rather not, press 1. Thanks. Just one more question. I need to know your eternal resting place. Please choose between heaven or hell. Using your keypad, push button 1 to go to hell. Or, to go to hell, press button 2. Press in your own time. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Press 9 if you'd like to hear the options again. Main menu. Okay. 
If you would like to order your compliment, thanks. Next question. Would you be happy to answer an thanks? Just one more question. I need to know your eternal resting place. Please choose between heaven or hell. Using your keypad, push button one to go to hell or to go to hell. Press button two. What? Press in your own time. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. I'm sorry, I... Thank you. You selected option one. You are going to hell. Please hold. Welcome to hell. Death is just the beginning of your journey. The more we learn about you, the better job we can do. Mm. For stranglers, press one. For people who had sex with couches, press two. I'm... For prison guards who intentionally sabotage the board games of their inmates, <sighs> press three. For sports mascots, press four. I'm having a tricky time. For people who smiled too much, press five. For spiders, press six. For people who killed spiders, press 7. If you are Adrian Wiggins and you attended St. Mary's Primary School in Kent 1983 and you actually did steal Kevin's Mario watch, press 8. For more categories, press 9. Alternatively, state your evil now. I'm having a tricky time. Thanks. I heard arms dealer and farm sex criminal. Please hold as we connect you. Thank you for waiting. Your soul is important to us. Did you know Hell currently has over 8 million rings and there are planned extensions for over 12,000 more, including new for 2018, state-of-the-art puppet theatre, daily classes in bread making and assertiveness, craft the noon sessions with Andy, the offices of SoundCloud, plus the screaming bone pits of... <laughs> you are currently on hold for Department Data 9, 9, Delta 3, November Arms dealers and farm sex criminals To aid processing time, please have a list ready of your nightmares, fears and phobias We'll also need to run a screen test in order to calibrate your experience You are next in the queue Can I help? Hello there, um, I... I think I might have come through to the wrong uh, de department. I, hit, I think I hit the wrong button to begin with. I don't suppose you could just... Okay. Is there a way to, to send me back to the first menu? Is, is that okay? Uh, I can't actually transfer you uh, into the, the menu, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, basically, I hit one. I meant to hit two. I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm just an absolute idiot. <laughs> I haven't even been to a farm, you know? Okay. That's not my, my thing. You couldn't possibly just, like transfer me to like uh like a general inquiries desk or something is that okay yeah no problem oh thank you so much like I, i'm sure this place is nice but it's just uh it's just not for me but thanks you're welcome have a nice day cheers thanks all right bye, bye. Some of Please Hold from episode 51 called After This. And this is from another imaginary advice episode called Re the Moon. I teach poetry classes from time to time. 
uh, with all different ages, from about five years old on up. Uh, I teach in schools and prisons, hospitals. First exercise I do in pretty much every single class I teach, no matter who they are or, uh, or how old they are, uh, I ask them to describe the moon. Everyone can learn something from this exercise, I think. Write a list of metaphors, I say. The moon is an adjective noun. The moon is a dark record. The moon is a blue church. The moon is a haunted inflatable. Now, of course, the moon is kind of a poetic cliche. It's a pretty hackneyed, romantic subject. But in many ways, that makes it the perfect place to start, particularly for an unsure writer, um, someone anxious about the rules and systems of poetry. It's easy to be tricked into believing that a poem arrives in the writer's mind all at once, fully formed, rather than through, you know, f***ing around, which is the truth. And is there a better place to f*** around than the moon? The moon is a sad bassist. You see, uh, the moon has a, a kind of powerful gravitational field. Obviously not in real life, of course, but, but in poetry it does. In poetry, the moon draws in concepts. It draws in language. Words just seem to stick to the moon. I maintain that a poet can pretty much compare the moon to anything. And the reader will read back that line think to themselves oh yeah I kind of see what they're getting at the moon is a time-lapsed mouth the moon is an Aztec supermarket it's almost as if through centuries of art and attention and manipulation we've exaggerated the moon so much that we've we've broken it in our brains and now it's just this this open figurative channel the moon is a it's a kind of open goal there's another one when doing this exercise with students there's one other condition that I insist upon I ask my students to select their adjectives and nouns not from their imagination but from the world around them they have to open a dictionary on a random page or another type of book on a random page or choose a word from a recent text message or a word overheard on the radio or the playground not from the same source either I want them to be putting together two words from two different sources one source for the adjective one for the noun uh, I'm trying to encourage them to, to act first think later to uh, to work intuitively and to use their environment as an extension of their imagination. I also want them to smash together words that don't really belong together uh, to create sparks and confusion, to create a brand new, never-before-uttered description of the moon. Like, no matter if, on first glance, it just feels like gibberish. Despite the excessive commentary uh, that already covers the moon, it is still possible to say something new about it. The moon is a Roman floppy disk. The moon is a feline sitcom. The moon is a Hebrew kingpin. So I've done workshops like this about once a week for about like 17 years. So I can go all day if you want. I've got reams of this stuff in folders next door. The moon is a ubiquitous chairman. Sometimes in class we take it further. Uh, I might ask the class, uh, oh, so this description of the moon here, if this was the first line in the story, what kind of story would it go on to be? Or uh, if I was to say to you, 
On the day that I was born, the moon was a dead travel agent. And what kind of a person would I be? What kind of horrific person would I be? But, but, but I insist, like, we don't start thinking about any of that until after the line is written. First we write it, then we work out what it means. First, the accident, then the autopsy. No matter what goes onto the page, it always seems to make sense in the end. It always seems to make sense. At least, to my ears, it does. That's how powerful the moon is. Everywhere you point, there's the moon. From Re The Moon, episode 49 of the podcast Imaginary Advice, written and produced by Ross Sutherland. In recent episodes, he's explored what it means to share a name with a Scottish rugby team called The Other Ross Sutherland, and one I really enjoyed where he goes inside the symbolism and the stories behind professional wrestling. That one's called Make It Real. And Eleanor McDowell, who produces BBC's Shortcuts and Radio Atlas, introduced me to that show. You're listening to The Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Sooner or later, the big one, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, is going to hit Los Angeles and Southern California. In fact, there's a 50-50 chance this is going to happen in the next 30 years. When it does, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people will lose their lives, and the damage bill could approach 300 billion US dollars. Hearing about big earthquakes here in New Zealand and elsewhere around the world made the Southern California public radio station, KPCC, think about how ready its local community really was for a natural disaster. And its series, The Big One, tries to picture what might happen after a big LA quake and what you'll need to know to survive. I'll speak to Jacob Margolis, who presents the show in just a moment, but first here's some of episode two called The Walk. This is a special safety message from the California Emergency Management Agency. Stronger shaking could follow the earthquake that already hit our area. It's safer to stay off the road right now. But if you must drive and the shaking starts again, pull over and stop at the first open, safe place you can find. Avoid all underpasses, power lines, and overhanging signs. If stopped, stay inside your car. If driving on a bridge or an overpass... Carefully continue moving until you're off the bridge. Then look for a safe, open place to stop until the shaking passes. And stay tuned to this station for more Your feet hurt, so you sit down on the sidewalk. You've made it through downtown LA, past your favorite taco stand, crossed over the 110 freeway with abandoned cars everywhere. A woman touches your shoulder. Are you okay? I don't know, you say. A couple of buildings have caught fire down the street. Flames roaring, black smoke rising. Smell it here is terrible. Sewage and burning chemicals. No one seems to know what to do. Everyone's calling 911, but no one's getting through. You can hear fire trucks running across the city, but they're not close. The woman asks you, When will they send help? You shrug your shoulders. I don't know.
We're better prepared for the big one than any big city in America, which is to say we're woefully unprepared. L.A.'s Mayor Eric Garcetti is worried. 40,000 city employees sounds like a lot, but when a disaster hits, they each have families. They have neighborhoods that they're living in. They may or may not be at work at any given time, and that spreads thin very quickly. Does more need to be done? Every day. Every person listening to this has something they can do today more than they. No listener is 100% prepared. Not even you? Not even me. There are 88 cities in L.A. County alone, and there aren't enough emergency responders to help everyone. So, to get outside help, the mayor's got to declare a state of emergency. Then, the governor will act. Not the sugarcoat is that this is a bad day. When California has bad days, Mark Gillarducci is in charge of the response. He runs the governor's office of emergency services. People tend to have what I call sort of a 911 syndrome. They, they feel like, you know, they're used to dialing 911 and getting all the resources that they're going to be able to get to deal with their crisis. In this set of circumstances, is not going to be the case. You know, you, you, you may be on your own for, uh, a, a highly likely that you'll be on your own for a period of time. Mark's going to get an alert on his phone, letting him know the big one's hit. So we're going to start activating fire strike teams and search and rescue teams from throughout the state. We're going to activate the National Guard early on. Then the president will declare a major disaster. And then FEMA gets involved. Agencies will talk via radios and satellite phones, coordinate help, send resources, but it'll take time. It could be more than a day before outside help shows up. And if you're trapped in a building, time matters. People don't last more than 48 hours, usually. Uh, if you had stuck a couple of bottles of water under your desk, you're going to be lasting a lot longer. You get a text from your wife. I can't get a hold of anyone at school. I've been stuck in traffic for hours. What should I do? You're desperate to get to your family, but roads are backed up, trains are down. Walking home all the way to North Hollywood is your only choice. Up Sunset Boulevard, through Silver Lake, then over the Santa Monica Mountains. It's about 15 miles. On a good day, this walk takes five hours. But today's not a good day. It's 12.30. You worry you won't get home before dark. This is a special safety message from the California Emergency Management Agency. Following an earthquake, a hot meal can help everyone feel better and calmer. It's not too early to start feeding people, but plan your meals carefully. Read the helpful information in the Survival Guide section near the front of your telephone directory. And stay tuned to this station for more information from the California Emergency Management Agency. It's hot. You're thirsty. You can still feel the dust in your throat. You notice a grocery store across the street. Cars fighting for spaces in the parking lot. There are more people here than you expected. You get closer and notice that the automatic doors are stuck on open. Store's dark. You head in. You're going to see a place that can't take credit cards. 
because without electricity and internet, you can't verify the credit card. So you probably want to keep some cash on you because you never know when an earthquake can hit. And having $20, $40 in your pocket means you can go buy that bottle of water. Two guys walk past you carrying tanks of propane. There's a couple of employees sitting by the door just staring at their phones trying to get service. A mom's pulling her crying kids through the bread aisle. There's more food on the floor than on the shelves. And it smells like spaghetti sauce, beer, and fish. Which way is the water? You ask a young woman who works there. It's in the back. What's left of it anyway. You walk down the aisle, with every step, glass and cereal crunch beneath your feet. At the back of the store, you see a cooler. There's not much left, so you go to grab the last two bottles of water. You slip on a puddle of milk. You pick yourself up and you head to the register. Shit, do I even have any cash? When we talk about looting, we're talking about breaking into locations and stealing things. Now, mind you, we're in a different world. When this earthquake hits, and it's of that type of magnitude, you have to look at the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Phil Fontanetta, I'm a commander with the Los Angeles Police Department, and I've been with LAPD for a little over 38 years. If you see somebody walking down the street with a case of water, then that's a case of water. And it's just a, it's the sustainment of life. That's understandable. What breaks my heart is when I do see looters and they're stealing a TV and they're stealing not something that's going to sustain life. It's 90 degrees out. You haven't had food since eight. But are you really just going to walk out? Yes. Yes, you are. You grab a peanut butter protein bar, stick it in your pocket, and leave. Some of episode two of the big one from KPCC called The Walk. And the main voice you heard there belongs to Jacob Margolis. He's a science reporter with a young family who started out with only a sketchy idea of what to do when the big one strikes. And one of the things the show does really well, and we probably heard it just there, is to dramatise these predictions of how things like transport and medical care and policing will be affected. I asked him how the team came up with these scenarios. The majority of the podcast is based on a report that came out from the U.S. Geological Survey and Caltech back in 2008. It's called The Shakeout Scenario. And they modelled... Uh, Over 300 scientists worked on this or contributed to it, and they modeled a 7.8 magnitude quake on the southern San Andreas Fault breaking south to north. And that is what we based our scenario on. And so that was peer-reviewed research, high-quality stuff that came from the top scientists in the world on this topic. And so we felt pretty comfortable laying out this particular scenario. Now, there could, there's an infinite number of earthquake scenarios that could occur. There could be big ones from other faults as well. And so... For ours, we decided to focus just on that one because it's supported by so much good science. And then in addition to that, we also went ahead and called up all of the different agencies that we talk about. We interviewed many of them. And since the report came out 10 years ago, we had to do a bunch of checking to make sure that, you know, it was still uh, viable. Like the concerns about, say, the water system were still viable. And so we talked to the people that run the water system and 
had a whole conversation about that. And so it turns out most of the concerns in the report are actually still very much concerns today because preparing for a massive earthquake, especially on the San Andreas Fault that runs almost the entirety of California, is a major, major undertaking, very expensive, and it's really hard to do. How did the idea for the podcast come about then? You know, they were taking podcast pitches uh, last in February 2018, and I sat down with the podcast team that was just kind of getting up and going. And this is a new sort of endeavor for uh, our radio station. And I just mentioned, they were like, what do you cover? I'm like, well, climate change, space there's a big earthquake that's coming that no one talks about. <laughs> I cover and blah, blah, blah. And I started talking about other things like, wait a second, hold on. And so, you know, then we launched into what that big earthquake was actually going to be. And like I said, for me, I'd, I'd been hearing about this my entire life. I've been talking to scientists for years as a reporter. I didn't really think twice about it. But for them, they're like, most people don't think about this. I'm like, oh, I live in that disaster headspace all the time. <laughs> I didn't think about that. And so, you know, from there, we then kind of plotted it out a bit. And we had to figure out how to present the information, which is very important to an audience without burning them out, without scaring them too much, and hopefully with giving them actionable things that they could do at the end of it all. And so that's why we settled on, you know, it's called the big one, your survival guide. And so we have tips at the end of every episode. And we tried to walk people through very realistic scenarios. And a lot of people commute in LA. And so that's why we chose the scenario of you having to walk back home over some mountains. You finally get to the top of Runyon Canyon and walk up Mulholland Drive. You're cold. Down below, the city burns. Broken gas and power lines, small fires grow, merging, turning into giant walls of flame. Black clouds of smoke rise high into the sky, backlit by the setting sun. The Hollywood sign is barely visible. It's what fire officials were worried about all along. I was in the Northridge earthquake back in 1994, which was a 6.7 magnitude quake on a fault that they did not know existed before all of a sudden it just tore the San Fernando Valley, which is part of LA, just apart at 4.30 in the morning. And that is my one of my first memories, because I was about five at the time. One of my first memories is being torn from my bed by my parents and taken into a dark hallway. The lights wouldn't turn on. And it was just aftershock after aftershock after aftershock, just hitting again and again and again and again. And our house was very badly damaged. We had to move out of it for quite a long time while it was fixed. And we bounced around to different families' houses. So that was a major event that had a major impact on my life. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I kind of also grappled with while making this series. So what's the aim of the show? What do you want people to to listen to, to pick up, to actually do from 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 listening to the podcast? Honestly, my number one hope for this podcast is that people then institute some changes in their lives to get ready for not just a big earthquake, but natural disasters. To have one gallon of water per person per day, to have extra food, to have extra medical supplies, to be ready for some sort of big event, because we, we're going to have those all around the world. You know, no matter where you live, let's say it's hurricane, let's say it's tornado, let's say it's a really bad snowstorm that locks you into your home of time. You know, people cannot rely on the systems that have been built to save them. People need to rely on themselves. Now, in the U.S., the systems are going to help a lot. And I do believe that FEMA will come in and help. I do believe that there are other organizations that will come in and help when a major quake hits. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to be self-sufficient for a period of time. And that's what every single official has told me. 
get a first aid kit or at the very least get some gauze, get some burn cream and get some band-aids. Hospitals are going to be super overwhelmed and the injury that people saw most after Northridge was people with glass in their feet. So you want to put yourself in a position where you can take care of that yourself. That must be a challenge for you as a program maker because when you impart that information about, you know, have a gallon of water a day, do this, do that, it's quite easy and I think this is probably something that all kinds of emergency management services wrestle with, it's quite easy for for the listener just to tune out. And if you're making a show about it, you've got to try and make it quite compelling, haven't you? You've got to draw me in. How did you go about doing that? So the way that we did that was we didn't just give people, you know, lettuce to eat. We didn't just say and scold them and say, you need to eat these vegetables. You need to do this right now. The way that we went about hopefully helping people accept some of this information by creating a hero. And the hero is hopefully one of our listeners. It's whoever is listening. And that hero goes through a journey themselves. And while it is only one scenario out of many scenarios that could occur, we want to hear stories. And so one of the best things that we can do as people who want to deliver this really important information is to couch it in some sort of compelling story. And we've heard from people that, you know, Some of this was too scary for them, but at the end of the day, they were glad they listened because they were able to get their supplies together as a result. Something that we've struggled with since the beginning is how do we make sure people don't burn out? And I think we've kind of done a good job. I hope we've done a good job balancing some of the fear with really practical advice. If you're trapped in a building, don't just start screaming all over the place because there might not be any people around. And by the time help actually does show up, you wouldn't be able to use your voice to tell them where you are. You might lose your voice. So what people recommend is that you find some sort of object that's near you and you make like rhythmic noises, like in threes or fives. And then when help is around, then let them know where you are. People talk about podcasts being kind of immersive and very immediate. And there is something about having your headphones on and kind of inhabiting the world created by a podcast. How could you use that when you were making the big one? You can't shake people's seats. <laughs> so when we, for instance, you know, launch the earthquake or when we have things crumbling around you or stuff falling, you know, there is sound design that goes into that. There is expressive music that we had scored specifically for this podcast that I think, you know, if you use those low bass notes and contrast them with the high pitched sound of glass breaking, you know, I think you can in people's heads sort of take them to that space. What that does is it it adds to the argument that we're trying to make that this thing is coming, it's going to happen, you're probably not prepared, but hold on, let's hold your hand and we'll take you to a place where you're going to be okay. And I'm curious, you know, for people, for instance, over in New Zealand, you know, who've gone through some really just horrific earthquake, earthquakes in recent history, can people in say New Zealand who have just gone through some of this stuff, can they relate it to their experience and hopefully take something away that is that is positive at the end of the day, that will get them ready for the inevitable next big one that kind of comes through for them. Jacob Margolis, the host and one of the team who made the big one from KPCC. And you can find a list of some of Jacob's favourite podcasts if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash the podcast hour now.
If you're a fan of classic detective fiction, Nio Marsh, Dorothy L. Sayers, maybe some Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot, then She Done It could be right up your street. It's made by Caroline Crampton, who writes for the industry website newsletter Hot Pod, but is also seriously into fictional sleuths and some of the real-life mysteries that surround them. And as the title suggests, she's especially interested in the role women play in this world. This is an interesting story all about the disappearance of the famous writer Agatha Christie, who went missing for 10 days back in 1926, with her marriage foundering and having recently lost her mother. Her abandoned car was found on the edge of a lake with the headlights on and her luggage still inside. On the 3rd of December 1926, Agatha Christie left her home in the southern English county of Berkshire just after 9.30 in the evening. She drove away in her Morris Cowley car, taking a small suitcase and a fur coat with her. Her secretary, Carlo Fisher, who also helped to look after Agatha's then seven-year-old daughter Rosalind, later related that the author had said nothing about where she was going. The following morning, the car was found 15 miles away at Newlands Corner near Guildford in Surrey, on the edge of a lake called Silent Pool. The headlights were still on and her luggage was inside, but the driver was nowhere to be seen. The police quickly identified the vehicle and brought Fisher and Agatha's husband Archie to the scene to see if they could shed any light on what had happened. By the time they got there, the car was already surrounded by members of the public. Their curiosity piqued by the mystery of the mystery writer's disappearance. The word was out. The lady had vanished. At the end of 1926, Agatha Christie was already a well-known author, although not yet the worldwide bestseller she became later in her career. Hercule Poirot had made his debut in her first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, in 1920, and she had also introduced the recurring sleuthing pair Tommy and Tuppence in 1922's The Secret Adversary. Four more books had followed the most recent at the time of her disappearance being The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, published in June 1926. This last proved to be something of a breakthrough for her, with its unusual structure and twist earning good reviews and sales. It marked the start of a new, much more profitable publishing deal with William Collins & Sons, the firm that would remain her publisher for the rest of her life. It's also probably one of her most enduringly popular books, and in 2013 was voted the best crime novel ever by the members of the Crime Writers Association. It might have been a good year for her professionally, but Agatha Christie's personal life in 1926 was a lot tougher. She wrote in her autobiography that it was a year of her life she hated recalling, because when one thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong. Her mother Clara, with whom she had an especially close relationship, had died earlier in the year. Relations with her husband Archie were already strained, Thanks partly to his golf obsession, Agatha described herself as that well-known figure, the golf widow. They had been apart for lengthy periods that year already, Agatha going to Corsica and Archie to Spain. And after her mother's death, 
Archie's disinterest in her grief drove them further apart. Archie stayed in London while Agatha took their daughter to Devon and spent the summer months back at her childhood home in Torquay, sorting out the house and its contents. She was lonely, ill, grieving, and clearly depressed. She wrote later about how during this time she kept bursting into tears all the time for no reason, or over seemingly trivial things like not being able to remember how to start her car. When Archie finally visited in August, it was not to take her to Italy for two weeks to recuperate as she'd been expecting. Instead, he told her that he was in love with someone else. Nancy Neal, a secretary ten years his junior. Neal had previously worked for Major Belcher, the director of the British Empire mission, who had arranged for the Christies to go on a ten-month round-the-world trip in 1924. Archie and Nancy had been seeing a lot of each other in London while Agatha had been in Devon and now he wanted a divorce as quickly as possible. In the weeks that followed, the Christies attempted a brief reconciliation, mostly for their daughter's sake, but it was no good. They had been together for over a decade. Archie had swept Agatha off her feet in 1913, even though she was then engaged to someone else. They had married on Christmas Eve 1914, two days before he was sent into action. He served with the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War and won two medals. It was Archie's ruthlessness and decisiveness that Agatha had initially found attractive in him. But now those same qualities were instrumental in making her terrible year so much worse. During the breakdown of their marriage, Archie was relentless in pursuit of his own happiness with Nancy, Agatha recalled later. That his happiness came at the cost of hers didn't seem to register. On the 3rd of December, which was a Friday, Agatha was out during the day. Archie packed his bags during her absence. Their attempted reunion was a waste of time, he had decided. He'd been invited to a house party that weekend, and Nancy would be there. By the time Agatha got home, her husband had already left. In her autobiography, Agatha discreetly draws a veil over what happened next. So ended my first married life, she wrote, before skipping ahead to the next February, when she went to the Canary Islands with her daughter and her beloved secretary, Carlo. This is understandable. Agatha Christie had spent 11 days at the centre of a nationwide manhunt and media maelstrom. She probably didn't want to dwell on all the ugly details. Luckily for your curiosity, though, that's exactly what we're about to do. Something that's important to know as we try to understand what really happened on the night of the 3rd of December 1926 is that Agatha Christie really, really loved her car. She said once that nothing else had given her more pleasure, more joy of achievement than her dear bottle-nosed Morris Cowley. She had bought it a few years previously with the £500 she'd received from a newspaper for the serial rights to her novel, The Man in the Brown Suit. That was a lot of money. According to the National Archives currency converter, it would be about £20,000 in today's money. Cars were still relatively rare in Britain at this time. None of her friends had one. Buying it herself with money that she had earned with her writing was one of the most exciting things she ever did equalled only by being invited to have dinner with the Queen at Buckingham Palace 40 years later. 
When her husband and close friend saw this beloved car abandoned on the edge of a lake, therefore, they would have immediately jumped to the conclusion that something was very, very wrong. Inside, the police had found her coat, luggage and expired driver's licence. There was no sign of the woman herself, so a missing persons report was issued. A hundred police officers combed the Surrey Downs for the vanished author, assisted by concerned members of the public who started arriving as soon as the story appeared in the newspapers. The initial theory was that Agatha had had a motor crash and wandered away from the car in a state of shock. But that idea quickly collapsed as no trace of her was found in the surrounding countryside. Several ponds, including the silent pool, were dragged, but nothing was found. An aeroplane was used to survey the area from above, which was the first time this had been done for a missing persons case in Britain, but to no avail. By the 7th of December, Scotland Yard had been called in and newspapers all over Britain were breathlessly reporting every development in the case of the vanished woman novelist. The stories mentioned her happy home life, Archie Christie obviously choosing not to contradict them, and speculated about a possible nervous breakdown over the loss of her mother and the hard work of producing so many novels in such a short time. As the days went by and nothing new emerged other than lots of false sightings, the coverage became wilder and wilder, even turning towards the supernatural for answers. The Daily Sketch called in a clairvoyant, who suggested that Christie's body would soon be found in a woodshed. The Daily Express asked the retired detective Walter Dew, the man who caught Crippen, who we met in episode two, for his thoughts. He gave his opinion that all women are subject to hysteria at times, but made no actually practical suggestions. Christie's fellow crime author Dorothy L. Sayers even wrote an article for the Daily News where she ran through all the possible solutions to the mystery, from suicide to a voluntary disappearance. The incident clearly stayed with Sayers too, because a similar abandoned car and missing woman scene appears in her novel Unnatural Death, which was published the following year. Perhaps the most bizarre intervention in the case was from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. He was in his late 60s now, and had formerly served in the ceremonial role of Deputy Lieutenant of Surrey, which gave him a certain measure of authority. The police gave him one of Agatha's gloves so that he could take part in the inquiries, and he took it to a spiritualist medium called Horace Leaf for information. Leaf wasn't able to divine a location, but he did say that he thought Agatha was still alive. Conan Doyle conveyed this news to Archie, and announced to the press that it proved how useful psychometry was to the detective. The police, increasingly desperate for hard evidence amid the media furore and the spirits, appealed directly to the public for help. On the 12th of December, over 2,000 people turned out for what was dubbed the Great Sunday Hunt, wrapped up warmly against the cold. Sayers went along herself, but neither she nor anyone else found anything significant, and the search was called off when darkness fell. During the time that Christie had been missing, there had been several suggestions from more cynical observers that this was all just a stunt to sell more copies of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. The story just seemed too perfect to be true. Famous mystery writer, wife of war hero and mother of beautiful little girl, disappears under mysterious circumstances, and even the greatest detectives of the day can't find her. The headlines from those days are like something that would spin up into view on the screen during a silent film, 
Search intensifies. Mystery deepens. Police baffled. Still no clue. There were even convincing red herrings, just like in one of Christie's own novels. On the 10th of December, it was reported that her body had been found in a canal near Basingstoke, but the corpse was later positively identified as that of Mrs Alice Livings, a widow from Aldershot. There were also persistent rumours that she was hiding in London or Cornwall, for no clear reason at all. It's really no wonder people started to think it was all engineered for publicity. Christie was already believed to be brilliant at concocting unsolvable plots. Who else could be behind something like this but her? And after all that, she turned up safe and sound, staying under a fake name at a hotel in Yorkshire. Some of episode four of She Done It called The Lady Vanishes, produced and presented by Caroline Crampton. And that's about all we've got time for now from the podcast ad. This week, we've been listening to The Complete Woman, Imaginary Advice, The Big One and She Done It. If you've heard anything good, then let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And I'll be sharing lots of recommendations on future shows. In the meantime, from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back same time next week with more great stuff to listen to.